You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Scared to Death, released March 1st, 1980. It was written by William Malone, based on a story by Malone and Robert Short, and directed by William Malone, and released by Lone Star Pictures. Bryce Dallas Howard was born the day after this film released coincidence i think yes Yes. (laughs) director william malone decided to make a monster movie since they typically had the best return for the investment he also had experience with monster design after working at a halloween mask factory for years and it's actually the same factory that made the halloween mask of william shatner used in the movie halloween oh so not just halloween masks it's literally the halloween mask factory the place malone actually designed and sculpted the william shatner mask himself that is used in the john carpenter series yeah but it's inside out right or is it i think it's just painted oh it's just painted white Mm. yeah they did something to it to fund the film malone sold his car mortgaged his house and built the costume himself over the course of three months based largely on the designs of hr giger The film was originally set to star Jesse's mom's singer, Rick Springfield, who backed out the day before production began because he was concerned about missing some upcoming acting classes. (laughs) Don't worry, you don't need it for this film. (laughs) Wouldn't being in a movie be an acting class? Not not this movie. A little bit. Um, But like, it just shows you how much he thought about this film. I mean, it sounds like a bullshit excuse to me just to get out of it. (laughs) And judging from Rick Springfield's historic acting career, it was definitely the right move for him. I gotta walk my dog later, so I can't. (laughs) He was replaced with incredibly short notice by John Stinson, an improv pal of Malone's. Texas-based production house Lone Star Pictures offered $40,000 to the budget and worldwide distribution. In total, the film only cost 74000 so by the time they sold the rights to Malaysia for 90000 the film had already paid for itself. Wow. With just Malaysian money. Yeah. Impressive. In the mid-80s, Malone was offered the opportunity to direct a sequel, simply called Sinjinor, and passed on it to direct his own script called Creature. A producer had fallen in love with the first film's monster design, but didn't care enough about the story, so none of the characters or plot carry over into the sequel. But Sinjinor was eventually released in 1990. Ten years later? Well, yeah, nine or ten, depending on which year you go by. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about falling in love with this creature design. It's not terrific. No, it's like a wrinkly jet jaguar. <laughs> like, yeah, it's just... I don't know. It looks like a sloppy zat. <laughs> We start with a prologue, labeled prologue. The events portrayed in this film, that's what it says, <laughs> although fictional, are based on scientific fact. Is it if, really a typo in there? Yeah. <laughs> if they have not already happened, they soon could. I'm sure it's already happened. <laughs> Genetic engineering is real, and soon we may all have to deal with the new values and definitions for life and death. 
I loved the text that we got from Richard, like when he was watching this and I hadn't seen it yet. He's like, "This opener is amazing." He's like, "I'm one second in and I love it." <laughs> yeah, it was. I was like, "Oh my god, please tell me this is gonna be a great movie." Yeah. <laughs> Three seconds later. Oh. No. <laughs> yeah, like I think like an hour or two later, like it's all downhill from here. <laughs> We open on a quiet morning in Sherman Oaks, California. The camera pans across a row of suburban houses and lands on a sign that reads end at the end of a cul-de-sac. Then we tilt down to the gutter and follow a leaf into a storm drain. We cut to POV walking around a sewer channel and we hear strange animal sounds or maybe creaking and we find a strange spined creature wrapped in thin vines on the sewer floor. Back above ground, the POV walks down a back street at night. It peeks in a bedroom window where a woman just stepped out of the shower and follows her to a second window as she dresses when her phone rings. It's an acquaintance named Walter. I can tell it's an acquaintance and not a love interest because she lies that she's been reading, assuming that if she tells Walter she just stepped out of the shower, he will assume that she's flirting with him. He's calling to invite her to a film festival, celebrating the works of Russian actress Maria Ospenskaya, Probably best known for her turns as gypsy fortune teller Maleva in Universal Monster Movies' The Wolfman and Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, she'd rather just watch TV here. She hears a sound in the other room and moves to inspect the damage she assumes that her cat has done. While she searches the place, the lights go out. For us, it's instantly pitch black, so the actress has a line so that we know what happened. Oh, wow. How great. Now I can't paint my toenails. Like, like you also just mentioned the fact that you wanted to sit and watch television. Yeah, like maybe be upset be that your favorite show is about to be on and you can't watch that. Or or, you know, that you have food in the fridge. Yeah. That's always my concern when the power goes out. Yeah. Not mine. It just means like, ooh, it's dinner time already. And to eat everything in the fridge. She lights a candle and starts looking for a fuse box and eventually finds a small, slimy humanoid monster behind her door. <laughs> And you know it's the 80s when there's just a random drawer full of candles. Right, yeah. Because I, I definitely have one because my house is stuck in the 80s. There's definitely a drawer you open. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, this drawer just has candles in it. I, it was weird to me because her line here is something like, I wonder where they keep the fuse box in this house. And yeah. I'm like, whose house are you in? Why well, she, she could be there? renting, but also, <laughs> why do they keep the fuse box somewhere? Like, Isn't it just where it was installed? She almost checks the fridge, and I was hoping that she would open the refrigerator because I really wanted the, the light, light to, to shine up. out and just yeah. be like, okay, well, the, the power's, power's not out. out. The way she's walking around this house, though, is really weird. Like, if this is your house, like, you just walk into a room. But what she's doing is, like, walking up to a door frame and, like, leaning into the room and yeah. kind of swinging around, like, just kind of poking her head in. I'm like... That is, that's not how you look for a cat in your nope. own house. No. Nope. <laughs> she doesn't even call for the cat. Do cats come when you call them? Um, Magpie does. Okay. Magpie's my cat, everybody. Don't hears. tell people that. They're going to come call for your cat. <laughs> she'll disappear. The monster attacks her, and we cut away to a raggedy Ann doll on her bed as a line of ketchup splashes across the toy. This won't be the only raggedy Ann reference that we will get in this movie. Is that true? I don't remember It the is other true. One. Do you remember the last movie we had raggedy Ann in? No. Oh, uh, I don't know if it really counts. There was a, I think it was a, I don't remember if it was a toy or just a image on the wall of Raggedy Ann, but it was in, uh, in the Shining. In the Shining. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
We fade forward a half day to cops investigating the scene. The door frame is apparently dripping in ectoplasm. The coroner tells Detective Lou Capel that he can't give a reliable time of death because of the lower temperature in the home. It wasn't cold last night. It wasn't here. How does he know that? <laughs> um, maybe because it's still cold in here? I don't know. That's weird. <laughs> or maybe there wasn't enough substantial decomp on the body. Maybe. But wouldn't that just mean that it's fresher? It's been fresher? a couple hours and like... How much colder could this creature have made this room? <laughs> and and why or how does it do that? How does well, they it... talk well, about they, it yeah, a little later. There's four pages of research that get read <laughs> to us about it. <laughs> the victim's name is Janie Richter, and apparently she lost her left leg in the attack. The police chief appears and tells Lou that it's up to him alone to solve this case. I've got the mayor, the commissioner, and the press on my back. Capel suggests bringing in Lonergan from retirement, but the chief pushes back. At, at this point in the movie, I was like, wait, why Why are there so many people on his back about one murder? Was she someone of note? Was she right. was like, oh, well, we'll come to find out that there have been many murders. Uh, this was just one of them. But it's like, you need to lead with that line. Right. Otherwise, yeah. I'm like, is this someone famous? Should I know who this person right. was? It's already, And it's only been a couple hours, presumably, yeah. since yeah. she died. So, like, like how is, how is why is there, like, you? a media circus about this? I don't know. Good news, Chief. She's all right. Because her left leg was torn. <laughs> <laughs> we cut to Ted Lonergan being harassed by a publisher named Victor to deliver books that he's under contract to write. Ted has no problem ripping on Victor right to his face. Victor, you're an idiot. And I can prove it. You know why you're not going to stop the checks? Huh? <laughs> you know why? Because those tired old plots are the same ones that gave you that home in Bel Air and that Rolls Cornish sitting in your driveway. So lighten up. Victor keeps trying to insult Ted's writing, but he freely admits it's garbage and mocks Victor for buying it. Ted gets in his car and backs out of his spot, crashing into another car, which was driving by or was just parked with the woman I think in it. It was just parked. Well, I, it looked like she was heading into a parking structure. Oh, maybe. He moves to talk to the other driver. You gotta look where you're going. You hit me. What? I said you hit me! I did? He suggests that she buy a smaller car, and she tells him that this car is an heirloom, and that she's very upset about it. I don't want another car. I like this car. And I especially like this car without any dents. Yeah, it probably would look better without dents, yeah. I already like the dialogue, and I wish it carried through the whole film like this, but it doesn't. All of his responses are dismissive and quiet, and he keeps offering her atomic rocks as she gets madder and madder. Are these supposed to be like pop rocks? I think so, Is it yeah. candy? Okay. I was hoping that the the atomic rocks are literally atomic rocks, and that's what's causing the monsters. <laughs> but like, they're here, just candy. have some cancer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he tells her he doesn't have time to wait around for the police and gives her his card, insisting she call the number when she knows what the damage is and he'll write her a check. She stops him from leaving a couple times. He asks her name and the actress flounders for a moment before remembering the character's name. <laughs> what, what, what's your name? Um, it's Jennifer Stanton. Eventually he talks his way out of the scene and we cut to Lou and Ted playing chess. Lou is losing. He tries to talk Ted into helping out on the latest series of gruesome murders and Ted is insulted by the offer and tells Lou that he isn't interested in helping out. Suddenly, Jennifer knocks on the door to collect the check for her car damage. Lou leaves to give them privacy, but not before insulting her on his way out. Just wanted to talk to Mr. Lonergan about my car. You're the crazy... I mean, the lady with the jag? Well, I know I've got to go now. 
presumably that means that Ted has told uh, him about her. Yes, and then and, he called her and crazy. And called her crazy, but like absolutely nothing she did was crazy yeah she was just sitting in her car and you crashed into it and she wanted to get paid for that yeah yeah it's it's weird that he would use that word to describe her after the last scene and i also think it's weird later in the movie when it comes up again and she embraces that nickname yeah like that's frustrating ted starts by informing her that he can't write her a check like he promised earlier she assumes this means that he's contesting liability but then he hands her an envelope with cash she was asking for 1200 but he gave her 2000 in case the parts that she needs are hard to find. To overdo the whole good guy persona, he also gives her the number of a really incredible mechanic who can find tricky parts for her. She admits that this isn't the reaction she expected from him. Well, I'm in contact with Earth occasionally, but uh, don't be fooled by this calm exterior. It's just a clever disguise. Actually, I'm uh, Errol Flynn. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't get it. He takes a shot asking her out before she leaves his office but she turns him down uh it was so weird the doorknob for this door for the is, office there yeah it's like at face level is it really that high off yeah you had to like reach up to open it and i was like ah it's so weird that's odd i did not catch that we don't like the children getting out yeah exactly <laughs> that's exactly what i was the thinking tamper proof office <laughs> we cut to a blonde woman being dropped off on a dark street after a night of partying she walks to her car and struggles with the keys for a moment she has trouble getting it started, but when she does, she somehow doesn't realize that her back tires are being lifted off the road. When she gets out of the car to see why it won't go forward, she's attacked by the same monster. Okay, but I just want to be clear that while she's trying to start her car and, like, hit the gas and stuff like that, this is a solid, like, three or four minutes of footage of her, like, really upset, like, oh, why isn't it going? I'm pushing yeah. the gas and it's just not going what am i gonna do and they just cut back and, and forth like, to the what? tires spinning the tires and the are, like and... the engine is running and the tires are spinning it would take me all of like two seconds to be like that's weird but Gotta also go check that out <laughs> wouldn't you feel it when someone lifts the back half of your car off of the street yeah yeah <laughs> when she gets out of the car to see what's wrong she's attacked by the same monster it's better lit now than it was before and we can tell that it has the body of a zat or like a monster from the blue lagoon type thing or sorry, blue lagoon <laughs> yeah, it's a monster from the blue lagoon yeah. it's, like, it's kind of like a, a brook shield yeah, it's super hot that's what i'm saying <laughs> but then it's got this fucking xenomorph head no the black lagoon and the head is very hr geekery but it's not stretched out like the xenomorph head it's like it's like it's a head shaped no, head. i'm telling you yeah. it looks just like jet jaguar but like lumpy okay lumpy jaguar <laughs> She smears strawberry syrup all over the inside window of the car as she screams <laughs> until she is silenced by the monster. We cut to a brunette woman in large framed glasses angrily ironing clothes in her kitchen. She's watching a news story about the murders. Weirdly, it looks like the establishing shot that the news segment started with is actually the same establishing shot that opened the film of the houses in Sherman Oaks. Well, you know, when you buy stock footage, you want to get your money's worth yeah. when you mm -hmm. only paid $70,000 for That's the whole true. film. <laughs> It sounds like Janie Richter was actually the 11th victim of the monster, which means it now has at least 12 kills. The lady turns off the television in her kitchen, and she appears overwhelmed by the story. She walks to her phone and dials 911 to share a tip with the investigators, but she doesn't respond to the person who answers the phone. Right. She's just uh, policephobic. Well, she doesn't dial 911. She dials a full phone number. Oh, okay. So she has some phone number memorized. Yeah. 
It's eight the eighties. You memorized all the phone numbers. Yeah. I didn't definitely didn't memorize and I never have memorized the local police office. But that's no. actually one that you probably should memorize, if nothing else. I agree. <laughs> I think it was more likely that people had that memorized before nine one one, which I think we decided happened right soon ab- or yeah, after. Yeah, right about yeah. Right about now. We see Jennifer arriving home and finding a rose and a note from Ted on her porch. I think it's a weird choice to have a Jenny and a Janie yeah. as two characters in the beginning of the film. We cut right to Ted arriving home to another note on his door, and it's her inviting him on a date tonight at 8 o'clock. This is a really inefficient way to coordinate a date because if he's not available tonight at 8, he's going to have to go back to her apartment and put <laughs> right. another note on her door. She so he didn't just leave a note at her door. He also left the car part that he damaged at right. her door. Yeah. And but I'm like, you are you gave her two thousand to dollars yeah. to find this part, and now you're just also giving it to yeah. her. Well, now, well, I'm gonna say this might be a spoiler, but um, uh, no, it was a quarter panel. Ah. <laughs> 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 Um, I guess she could technically consider the money as an advance on her uh, hiring. Her employment? Is that what happens? <laughs> yes. What kind of employment is this, by the way? Yeah. What exactly is he paying for? And what did she do before? She she has she quit a, her job. She she has a she drives around in a Jag, but then she lives. In but it's a, a hand me down, so she could be poor. That's true. But uh, you know, she's she must maintain it. Yeah, but she also seems like clinically depressed like well, someone hit her car and she's just sitting there silently in it until they come to talk to her <laughs> and he's like hey you hit me and she's like you hit me <laughs> what we saw them share phone numbers earlier though there's no reason we're leaving notes on each other's doors right 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 driving across town to send a text message to somebody that's how you had to do it in the 80s no it's not <laughs> they had phones or you folded the paper the note up into like a little ninja star and you flicked it yeah <laughs> it killed a ninja Jenny returns to his apartment building that night and bumps into a strange man on her way in. He's wearing sunglasses at night, and he seems hypnotized or baked out of his mind. After they collide with each other, the man walks out without saying a word. Now, this would have been interesting had we not already known that, that it was kid, a monster. Yeah, yeah, and had already seen it. Yeah. Because like before he, she gets to that point of meeting the man, she's walking back and forth, hearing sounds and right. seeming scared. I was like, oh, it's a creature. But then she bumps into this guy... And the guy seems sinister. Yeah, he seems really but, creepy. But we had to establish him early so that when he comes back later, we'll remember him. Oh, from the scene. oh wait, he doesn't come back. No, no, that was it. When she sees what Ted planned on wearing for their date, she switches her plan to dinner at her place. She's like, hmm, you're going to wear that, huh? Why don't we do this at my house? I'm ashamed to be seen with you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for a successful author with hundreds of dollars to overpay someone for car damage, this guy's place is a pigsty. And it's weird that his clothes are not acceptable for a date. Well, it's it's also like worked, I think, to her benefit in that I don't actually have a job or any money. Yeah. So it was like, oh, I'll just pretend like I don't like what you're wearing. And we yeah. At her place, they finish a meal and he asks her to put on some music. She wants to know if he has a request and he picks Ravel's Bolero and then pretends it was a joke because he's trying to be an elitist piece of shit. She pours them both wine and invites him to ask about her, but it turns out he's a creeper P.I., and he already looked into her background. He starts rattling off details about her birthday and birthplace, ending with the death of her parents in a car accident a mere five years ago, and the mood understandably changes. Well, 
But the fact that she's like, she's obviously upset about the fact that he mentioned her parents. Right. But she's not bothered by the fact that he looked up all this shit about her. Yeah. And he's just blames it on like, oh, well, you know that I used to be a PI, so it's okay. Or that I used to be a cop. But it's like, did she know that? I don't remember you telling her that prior to this moment. He apologizes and they kiss. And then we cut to an uncomfortable and very slow moving sex scene. (laughs) But then we cut away to sanitation workers climbing into a manhole cover for some emergency repairs. The first guy, Tyndall, climbs down the ladder into the sewer, and the other guy just waits up at the top. I I really liked their their chemistry as like a pair of buddy yeah. maintenance workers, and I wanted this to be like a situation like with Alligator, where it's like, oh, okay, one of these maintenance workers is going to join the team or right. something like that. Right. And uh, the guy that's staying above ground is wearing a helmet that says Skylab on it, mm-hmm. but it looks hand-painted on his helmet. Tyndall comments on the cold underground, which I guess is colder than usual, uh, which we've come to learn is a sign of the monster. Tyndall waves a flashlight around, searching for whatever issue he's here to correct, but he keeps hearing sounds and asks if his partner can hear them. Hey, did you hear something? Hey, like what, Ralphie boy? Do you recall our previous Honeymooners reference? It's a movie you just mentioned. Alligator? Alligator. Oh. There was a, a sewer worker named Ed Norton who got killed <laughs> by an alligator in that movie. And we decided that it's a, it's a sequel, a direct sequel to Honeymooners. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, Tyndall is attacked by the monster, and his partner is very reluctant to check on him until he goes completely silent. Probably not the best job to have if you're so terrified that you can't even enter the sewers. But he quickly notices the monster and then somersaults out of the manhole he, before pushing it shut. Yeah, he does exactly what I would have done yeah. in this situation <laughs> of get my feet out of this hole as soon as possible. Yeah. He doesn't like climb up and scurry. He's just like, whoop, I'm yeah, out. Yeah, kicks his legs over his own <laughs> yeah. shoulders. But then he sits there with his legs around the the manhole. Well, I, I, I would have done this too because the moment something sticks his head out, I'm going to kick the hell out of well, it. Well, that's not what happened. The monster lifts the manhole cover and pulls him down into the sewer. It doesn't happen in the Amazon Prime version, but it happens what? in the YouTube version. Oh, what? So we see him get sucked under and oh, die. Oh, he, he doesn't live? Oh. He doesn't, he doesn't live in the YouTube version of this movie. I, I mean, I guess it... No, he doesn't. So, no, he doesn't live in the Amazon version. That's the version or, I sorry. watched. Yeah. yeah. It, well, no, he does. No, live he in. does live. No, he does live. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Well, I guess that makes sense because at this point, I'm like, okay, he saw some shit go down, or at least he heard some shit go down, yeah. and and something was chasing him. Don't you report that to the authorities? And now, don't they have some sort of clue that something's happening in the sewers? But apparently, they don't because he got eaten. Yeah. But that when, makes more sense. But they would still have some clue because the the vehicle there's and all missing the... maintenance workers well, it turns out that the other guy survived this is the guy that died but the other guy's <laughs> yeah. fine so far anyway and now that's a spoiler <laughs> or is it gonna be like tremors when it was like well i'm sure they'll come more people will come when they realize the phones are out and then it just shows the second vehicle that arrived with bloody stuff everywhere <laughs> <laughs> the movie is so perfect yeah we cut to ted's place where he's working on a typewriter Lou shows up to beg for his help again on the case, but it sounds like either the stereo audio tracks are playing slightly out of sync to cause an echo, or they recorded this ADR in a parking structure. (laughs) Hello, Ted. Hi, Lou. What brings you here? Just in the area. Wow, what happened here? He notices the place has been picked up a bit. Suddenly, Jennifer steps forward with paperwork from the other room. 
It appears as though Ted has employed his girlfriend as an office assistant. Lou recognizes her. <laughs> the crazy, crazy lady, lady with, with the, the jag. <laughs> they say in unison. When she learns that Lou is a cop, she steps away to file paperwork. She asks where a couple folders should go, and he tells her to file them under F. Ackerman and K. O'Quinn. I'm not sure who O'Quinn is a reference to, but I'm relatively certain that F. Ackerman is a reference to Forey Ackerman, the famous magazine editor, sci-fi writer, and literary agent to authors like Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, and L. Ron Hubbard, who founded the famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. He also appeared in 210 mostly sci-fi films, including The Howling later this season of the podcast. He still has credits active in post-production now. And former guest of the podcast, Robert Leininger, had the pleasure of attending his 90th birthday party. Oh my goodness. Uh, but he is since deceased. So he 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 must have credits just based on stuff and acting credits that acting he credits? yeah oh my stuff goodness. that's just been shot and hasn't huh. been released yet. Lou shares with Ted some of the outlandish details of the case, including that the killer was strong enough to tear off a car door at the last murder scene. He says that the only lead is the latest victim, Kathy Spera, but she's in a coma and she might not recover. Ted still thinks that Lou is offering him the case out of charity and not because he actually needs help, which is weird. It doesn't seem like he's hurting for money. What yeah. what kind of charity are we talking about here? Yeah, but he keeps making it sound like, oh, look, I don't need this. You don't have to do this for me. And it's like, I'm literally asking you to help me. I'm yeah. begging for you to help me. It's not for you. It's for me. We also keep hinting at something traumatic that must have happened in Ted's past that is like a reason that he's not ready to go like investigate crimes yet. But we never yeah. flesh that out other yeah. than that he may have had some kind of a drinking problem that caused him to be let go from the police force. Um, unless he quit. I don't know. Well, he, he had a, all that wine. Oh, yeah. no, you quit drinking. Uh, you mean quit the force. Yeah. Okay. We cut to a pack of kids in an empty parking structure. One of the guys is fixing a pair of roller skates and his impatient female friend Kelly decides to go for a run alone. She stops a few floors down when she hears a sort of scraping, growling sound. She leans against a VW bug and changes her entire outfit on the bottom floor for a weirdly long time before mm -hmm. starting back up the stairs to her friends. Yeah, it's like... What was the point of this? Well, aren't you going to continue to roller skate? Like... Like, well, you don't want to go up the stairs on roller skates. Well, but this is her car, so I and they had another car at the top. So I was trying to figure out what the whole plan of, of roller skating in the parking structure was. Like, I think it was literally you roll all the way down, and then you go up the stairs and roll all the way down again. Okay, so she was supposed to run up the stairs. It's there. like an adult playground where you go up the stairs, and you go down the slide over and over and over again. But when she gets to the top of the stairs, the door is locked on the next floor up, and so she goes back down. And as she's moving around the corner, she encounters the monster. Her friends start racing down the structure looking for her. And the monster gets Kelly cornered and lifts her off the ground by her head, like that guy in Bloody Valentine. And then we see a forked tongue push its way through two rows of slimy teeth and then down the girl's throat. And she's like gagging on it. Yeah, but not screaming no. or like thrashing around but I just feel like, like oh no stop oh. yeah i feel like it would be more of a struggle here as you're lifted by your head yeah kelly's friends find her roller skates and open the door to the stairs to head down to the car when kelly's body swings down upside down from the door frame with blood all over her face we cut to the police on the scene and suddenly ted is here despite his repeated refusals to help out 
Lou tries to interview the surviving girl, but she's in shock. I'm not sure why this was necessary, since she didn't see anything anyway, besides the body, which the cops have also seen. The chief shows up to the murder scene wearing a full tuxedo for some reason. He lays into Ted for his drinking habits and demands that Lou drag him out of the crime scene. Apparently, Ted and Jennifer are inseparable now, and so she's also investigating the crime scene. I, he just I, brought his girlfriend. I was really hoping that the reason that he's wearing this is because everybody had to provide their own wardrobe for the yeah. like the shoots. And they're like, no, just wear like a different suit than the one you wore in the last shot. It's like, I don't have any other suits. This is all I got. Yeah. <laughs> I have to go to a premiere that night. Just stop by. You don't even have to change. Just wear your tuxedo yeah, to we'll, the crime we'll scene. write it scene. off. It's fine. It adds story. Somehow the woman that we saw hanging up on the police earlier, or whoever she hung up on, is here at the crime scene. Like, she found out about this crime and came down to the crime scene, even though she doesn't like talking to police. And she talked to everyone here to determine which of these people was not a police officer. <laughs> so she could give that person her testimony. Why don't you just do this anywhere else? Yeah. Tell literally anybody anywhere what you have. Well, it's weird because, yeah, because Jennifer comes up and says... That person says she has some information and she wants she doesn't want to talk to the police. It's like, so you've already talked to her? Yeah. Yeah. So so did you get the information yet? Well, no. We've agreed to meet at a second location. <laughs> <laughs> but also, this person, you, that I'm talking to, is also not a police, but I'm not going to bring you with me. Right. <laughs> Lou invites Ted to take a look at the body and Ted reacts as though it hadn't even occurred to him. Is he really going to be that helpful to this crime scene investigation? It seems like not. Have you seen the body? No, no, not really. Come until we Even though the girl who wanted to speak with Jen was there at the crime scene, they agree to meet at a second location, the Amberdyne Research Facility. Jen moves inside looking for Sherry. She's a little spooked by the sounds of water and what sound like power tools, but she convinces herself that it's nothing. She finds slime on a water pipe, like the stuff from the first crime scene that she wasn't present for. Suddenly, a large shadow is growing on the wall behind her. Suddenly? Well, after six minutes yeah. of wandering. Yeah, yeah I, I, I checked the time of her arrival. But right at the end, it was very sudden. <laughs> <laughs> That's from Fletch. I was like, this is fucking five minutes of her just walking around. Gotta pad that runtime. Yeah. The monster approaches and then attacks her against a wall. We see his dripping forked tongue gagging her again. Ted gets a phone call at his office. It's Lou informing Ted that Jennifer is in the hospital in a coma. What? What? What happened? They're not sure. The doctors think it's a brain tumor. She was at a place called the Aberdeen Research Facility. She apparently went into convulsions and into a coma. The young girl who works there found her. Ted knows she was there to speak with Sherry, and he heads to the hospital, but the doctor won't let him see Jennifer because he isn't family. <laughs> and she wasn't available that day to shoot. Right. Luckily, the doctor is willing to violate HIPAA far enough to share that she suffered convulsions and then went into a coma. But apparently she went into a form of epileptic convulsions and then into a uh, comatose condition. I'm afraid she's slowly slipping into a profound state. What does that mean? It means she's thinking about pursuing a philosophy doctor. <laughs> <laughs> she's dying, you dum-dum. That's what the doctor says. That's not. Those aren't my words. No. Those are my words. The next 24 hours will tell, but her chances aren't good. We cut back to Ted's office where he slipped back into his alcoholic tendencies when Lou tries to shake him out of it, literally shake him out of it. Sherry steps into the office, and when Ted realizes this is the last woman to see Jen alive, he makes an odd investigative choice. 
You talked to Jennifer, right? Well, yes. You were going to meet her somewhere. My car was heated and I couldn't... Nothing. I didn't do anything. All right, haven't you done enough damage already? Get out of my office. Would you just get the hell out of here? He tells her to leave. (laughs) Sherry is here to announce that she doesn't believe the brain tumor story. What brain tumor story? (laughs) Did I mention that yet? You did. They said she has a brain tumor. She says that the monster attacks would cause the appearance of brain tumors. She worked for Dr. Amberdine in genetic engineering, and he developed a new life form. But Ted is bored with this information. <laughs> he was at work in secret on designing a new life form. Well, this is real fascinating, but what does it have to do with Jennifer? Getting to that. Look, do you want to hear this or don't you? Ted, no, not really. Ted, shut up. Would you go on, lady? We're sorry. <laughs> He told me once that if it ever grew up, it would probably be very dangerous. Yeah, well, I take it it never grew up, huh? Well, I don't know. You see, Ed... I mean, Dr. Amberdeen had a heart attack and died. I know he planned on killing it before it got too big, but he didn't get a chance. I'm assuming she accidentally called him Ed because they were lovers or something. Right. But she... I don't know what they're trying to do with her character... Because they keep trying to dress her up like she's really young, yeah. like 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 a high school student, but she clearly must be a college graduate, right? Um, but, but the character's totally unnecessary anyway. Yeah. I don't but, know why we're switching female leads midstream. But also, she does this great line read. She's like, "Would you please look into it?" Yeah. <laughs> like she's like like does a pouty face. Yeah. Even come on, guys. Why is she avoiding talking to the cops about any of this? I don't understand that. I'm trying to figure out if maybe the other actress quit the movie. Um, and so they had to switch leads because yeah, like it's the, other, the other lady had a problem. Or it could be that uh, talking to the police would violate her NDA. Oh, maybe. She doesn't want to get jailed by the guy who died of a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> this woman should have been the one put in a coma by the monster before she met with Jen. And Jen should have just found some of this information and paperwork at the laboratory. It feeds on spinal fluid. It draws out of its victim with a needle-like tongue. What were you guys feeding it? Is the human throat a convenient path for spinal fluid? <laughs> it doesn't yes. seem like it. Sherry tells them that this process would look to a doctor like a brain tumor. <laughs> Is it also injecting something into the victim's brain? I don't Why would that look like Why would that affect an x-ray or a cat scan or whatever? It seems like it should be extracting the f- fluid around the brain. Right. That's what it should be extracting. She begs for their help investigating the new life form, fearing the consequences of allowing it to grow up, but it seems like it already did. She offers to go back down to the lab to collect the late doctor's paperwork and to find clues as to how they can kill the beast. I'm going to guess right now bullets would probably work okay. Like, I don't know. They don't know what this thing looks like at all. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why they're assuming that it has horcruxes or something, (laughs) that there's some mystery to killing it. Ted says he's going to look at the disappearances and find a center point for all of the murders. Yeah, and that then seems he, like something that the cops the would be doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he lets the girl go back to the same lab alone where Jen just got comad. Haven't the police already determined an epicenter for these attacks? Wouldn't that be the first thing that you would do if you had this many yes. victims, though? <laughs> well, and I guess the problem was that they weren't connecting all of the victims like there was there was a bunch of victims but that at were one like, point someone said this is the 11th victim on the news they said yeah this is the so 11th so victim. Uh, yeah so at least 11 of them you would still but but maybe you don't find the correct epicenter until you add in all of the brain tumor people yeah. too usually the police will let you get away with about 20 to 30 murders 
to develop a, a useful epicenter. Yeah, they got to find patterns. If you yeah. don't have enough data, you don't have patterns. If they catch you in the act on the third one, you're like, well, we don't know where you live yet. <laughs> Keep the, at it. The Simpsons, when they're looking at the pattern of the crimes, and it's like, if you rearrange these, it makes an arrow. Chief, it's pointing at this police station. Let's get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> in the laboratory, Sherry digs through an office desk full of kids' books for some reason. This is where the Raggedy Ann book is. She oh, has okay. a Raggedy Ann book. There is? Okay. Uh, That's what I'm saying. Like they're try- They keep trying to dress her up and make her seem like she's a child. That's very weird. Well, I yeah. This whole this whole facility, like where she's finding all of the data, looked like a uh, looked like a daycare to me. Like it had paintings of like trees on the wall. <laughs> yeah. She finds the files she's looking for, and back in Ted's office, he is shaving while poking at the city map with his finger. When Lou calls to confirm that lots of people have been dying of tumors lately, and a bunch are running low on spinal fluid. I imagine a coroner just chopping off heads and putting a dipstick down their <laughs> spine like. Oh, hear about a court low. Must be that monster. Ted says a killer of a brand new species would have an impossible time moving around town without being seen. Oh, but Lou has another detail to share about the string of heinous murders with zero suspects. The case has been closed. What? I got a bulletin the other day which reads, the suspect was cornered and was killed during a subsequent gun battle with police. What an incredible relief. The film is over. (laughs) They killed the monster. Lou makes it sound like they just classified the whole case rather than bothering to solve it, but maybe they misunderstood and the monster was just shot to death. I tried to get more information, but the big wigs upstairs put a gag order on it. They are trying to cover something up. You don't know that. You know something else? They're going to stop looking. Look, Ted, this isn't getting us anywhere. Now, I cannot be involved in this thing officially anymore. The case is closed. Damn it! What's the point of closing an investigation if the killer is still at large? But, but also, like... So presumably they closed it because it looked bad it, or it's yeah. a, I, I presumed because it was some sort of cover up. But who knows about this thing and and who's covering it up and why does this not come back at all for the rest of the movie? Also, who did they kill? <laughs> did they just shoot a hobo to death? And they were well, like, we well, got him. I just assumed that that was fake. Like they just had a fake report or well, or they did encounter a criminal suspect who maybe was in- Attempting to kidnap someone. Yeah, someone or... jaywalked and they shot him to death. And they're yeah. like, well. Is it in the YouTube version? Make them away, toys. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not in the YouTube version. Lou assures Ted that they will still work the case. They just have to take the work off the clock. Ted apologizes for getting so upset. And actually, he keeps doing that. Like, he, he follows this pattern of he gets really angry and he yells at people. And then he backs down and apologizes. I actually made a super cut of all of his apologies. So we'll play that for you here. Hey, look, I'm sorry I hit your car. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. Me too. I'm sorry, Miss Stanton, I can't give you a check. Look, um, I am sorry. Sorry about that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I am sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about what happened. Look, I'm sorry, Lou. I just got a little excited. I'll talk to you soon. Ted hangs up with Lou and seconds later realizes that the laboratory is in the center of the murder circle. Oh, who'd have thunk it? The laboratory where we already figured out the monster came from is where the monster came from. <laughs> he drags open his desk drawer, which is packed to the brim <laughs> with loaded handguns. Oh my God. I was so excited. It's like, finally. Yes. And he picks up the biggest one, which is like, it's like a 10 inch long handgun. It's crazy huge. It looks like something that, uh, that you could use to shoot through schools. Oh. It's a Johnny Dangerously reference. It's an 88 Magnum. It shoots through schools. 
Well, that joke doesn't age well. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's so much funnier now. Uh, I was thinking more of uh, Burt Gummer's uh, gun that in part two of Tremors. Yeah. Make another Tremors reference. Never enough. Before we cut back to the laboratory, we get a quick insert of Jennifer struggling in a hospital bed. Like, literally like a half-second shot of her going, (laughs) Then we listen to Sherry read exposition about how this monster functions. Like, very scientific, drawn-out exposition. None of it's especially important, except we learn that the monster is called Syngenor, which is short for Synthesized Genetic Organism, and what it survives on. Its diet being what it is, spinal fluid, along with what seems an almost diabolical cunning, could make this creature extremely dangerous if I were to allow it to reach maturity. Yeah, probably could. Definitely could. All right. Let's just say you're a scientist and you wanted to make a genetic organism, like a like a synthetic genetic organism, will you? And you could pick whatever you want to feed it. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you pick spinal fluid? I mean, it seems like semen is the obvious choice, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> and there's the porn version where this monster just goes around sucking people's dicks. <laughs> yeah. That's what it lives off of. Uh, except the, the or in Syngenor stands for orgasm in that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Synthesized genetic orgasms. <laughs> <laughs> the paperwork reads like a diary describing the worsening behavior of a monster that subsists on human spinal fluid. Why did you make that? It reminds me of that SNL sketch of the Mad Scientists convention where everyone's presenting their most evil inventions. Somebody made a shrink ray, somebody made a freeze ray, and then the rock comes out. My name is Roy, and uh, <laughs> I, um, and for the most evil invention in the world contest, I invented a, uh, a child molesting robot. <laughs> <laughs> I beg your pardon, what? Oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll speak up. Uh, it's a robot that is designed to molest children. Oh, God. But it's kind of like Deep Blue Sea, too, where it's like, here's what we did. We took great whites because they don't get dementia. So there's something about their brains that causes them to not get dementia. So we're studying them. So we genetically engineered great white sharks with massive brains. <laughs> this can't possibly go wrong. Yeah. Sherry follows scratching sounds all over the laboratory instead of just leaving with the paperwork that she successfully found. She doesn't even bring it with her on the creepy sound hunt. She shoves open a door to the outside and a man in zombified makeup and covered in cobwebs falls through the door to scare her. She races back through the lab and crashes into Ted at the opposite door, screaming after mistaking him for another monster. She brings him back to where the man fell and when they get to him, it's the first guy that went down into the sewers. Before he dies, he manages to choke out that the monster lives in the sewers and that he's there now. Ted doesn't seem phased by this guy dying right in front of them and repeats to Sherry that the monster must live in the sewers, like this dead guy just said. Can you remember the last time the guy came out of the sewers about a monster? Blood Beach. But he didn't say anything because he was brain dead and his tongue was eaten. Yep. (laughs) By a flower. (laughs) What? Blood Beach, everybody. She takes this opportunity to inform him that the creature also reproduces asexually and might be nearing that phase of its lifespan. It doesn't seem to reproduce asexually. It seems to... Well, it kind of laid an egg. Yeah. Is that what that was? I don't know. It's kind of like a spiny backpack. That's what it laid. (laughs) Ted cocks his gun and starts walking to the nearest manhole cover. 
He tries in vain to convince Sherry to go home, but she insists on joining him down there. She claims that he will need her expertise. For example, she knows what the scientist named this creature, Sinjinor. That will certainly be integral to killing it. <laughs> you have to say its name three times. Yes. <laughs> Wait, no, no, that makes it appear. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you have to say its name backwards? No, that's Mixiexpiclic. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Quick question. Isn't Sinjinar technically an endangered species? Shouldn't we try trapping it first? If it's the last of its species, are you really just going to go and shoot it in the face? Are you the last of your species if you're also the first? Sure, you could be. I guess that makes sense. It doesn't seem to be anybody's plan here, though. It's kind of like how I've always thought that if we make a computer smarter than people, it would technically be more important than people, too, and we should all sacrifice ourselves to protect it. They climb down into the sewers, and he starts asking her questions about what the creature looks like, the type of questions that would justify bringing her down here in the first place. Um, how big is this thing by now? I'm not sure. What does it look like? I don't know. I thought you said you knew all about this thing. He follows some creepy moaning noises around a corner and finds a pile of still breathing, moaning, farting victims <laughs> that seem connected to each other with veins and webbing. Ted tries to touch a weird ribbed mound of pulsating monster flesh and suddenly a zombified victim beside him starts vomiting bright green foam. He backs away and shoots the pulsating egg, or whatever it is, a few times when they are confronted by the Sinjinor. They run away and climb a ladder to get back out of the sewer. Sherry can't lift the manhole cover at the top. I don't know if it's where they climbed in or just another outlet, but there might be like a car parked on it or something, mm -hmm. but they can't get out. And so Ted keeps his gun trained on the Sinjiner as it's moving toward them. He shoots it once in the face, and the thing just keeps coming. So I guess I was wrong about that. They give up on the escape path and tear down a boarded-up doorway to get to a sewer grate, but it's too high off the ground. So Ted has to go find a ladder, like a wooden ladder that just happened to be down here also. <laughs> so he says, wait a second, I saw a ladder back there. And he starts running, and he runs past uh like a ladder on the wall like it's, yeah you know like rungs of a ladder up to the to mm -hmm. the street and i'm like what is he doing he ran past the ladder and then he just picks up a wooden ladder I'm that like, was what just the on fuck? the ground <laughs> okay apparently there was a ladder but he brings it back to her and they climb up to the sewer grate and out of the sewer sherry drops her glasses on their way out lou is suddenly at the lab studying the body of the dead maintenance worker and realizes that sinjinor lives in the sewers because there's a sewer hole there's a manhole cover nearby and there's a bunch of slime all around it where this guy climbed out it turns out that where ted and sherry climbed out of the sewer is inside of a private business yeah that ted has frequented yeah like he knows this place sherry i've been here before this is lee thornberg's metalworks the new problem seems to be that they literally can't get out of the building the monster has followed them into the metalworks the Sinjinor corners them in a small office, but they notice a door behind a bookshelf, <laughs> and they push through it to race back through the rest of the factory again. Ted walks Sherry up to a large metal press and shows her how to operate the machine. She's very reluctant to take the controls, especially blinded as she is without her glasses, but he convinces her, you just have to push these two buttons, okay? That's literally all you have to do. Step here, push these. His plan is to lure the monster into the press, and he's counting on her to press the buttons in time to smash it as he walks away she shouts wait a minute and he seems to just blatantly ignore her she reads him a handwritten message she found stan the stroke motor is overheating again 
Do not leave the control box on for more than a minute without operating. The breakers will blow. Have fun, Reg. The lights go out on the machine. Dad! The power went out! There's a note in it that says something about breakers! Ted finds the breakers and flips them, bringing the press back online, but I would assume it would only be online for a minute again right. before it goes out. Ted is face to face with the monster suddenly and leads it back toward the press. It lifts him in the air and suddenly Lou hits it with a shotgun blast. The Sengenor lands directly in the middle of the press and Ted shouts at Sherry to drop it. She takes her time, but they successfully crush the monster. Back in the hospital, with absolutely no lighting for some reason, Jennifer suddenly wakes up calling for Ted, completely oblivious that he has moved on to Sherry. <laughs> she steps out of the hospital bed and is immediately grabbed by a second Sengenor. Then she wakes up. It was a nightmare. There's, there's only one Sengenor. We tilt down from an exterior of the hospital to a sewer grate outside, and then we're walking around in POV in the sewers again. The end. <laughs> I was kind of hoping that Jennifer would wake up the second time and then notice she was pregnant in the hospital. That's what yeah. I was waiting for. Yeah. Like it was it, because they talk about it reaching its you know reproductive stage. You, yeah. you were like, okay, so let's do that. That's the end of our film. It was written, directed, and storied by William Malone. This was his first feature film. His second film is 1985's Creature. He followed it with mostly TV work until the 1999 remake of The House on Haunted Hill, which I like a lot. For TV, he directed some Freddy's Nightmares episodes, Tales from the Crypt, and A Masters of Horror. He also wrote the 2000 film Supernova, directed by Walter Hill. The Yikes. Yeah, it's not great. It's a space movie with, um, what's his a name? A lot of sex in it. Blacklist, uh, what's his name? What's the guy's name from James, Blacklist? James Spader? James Spader, there you go. Isn't he the main character? Is he in Supernova? God, it's been so long since I've seen it. Indeed he is. The other story credit here went to Robert Short. This was his first writing credit and the only one I recognize so far. But aside from writing, he actually has a lot of really cool credits. He plays the character of Ed in this film. Who's Ed? I don't... Well, Ed, Ed, Ed was the theoretical scientist guy yeah. but like we didn't see him he played that guy in this film <laughs> later this year we'll see his work as a creature designer on galaxy of terror he directed second unit on 1987's munchies nice. which was sequelized with the 1992 film munchie and then 94's munchie strikes back i'm not sure how i missed that munchie was a sequel but it's kind of their own fault for pluralizing against the grain you wouldn't call gremlins to gremlin doesn't make right. sense he created the cocoons for cocoon the return in which he played a technician he has special effects makeup credits in alligator splash night flyers beetlejuice and little monsters hmm. he's credited as alien designer in close encounters for the 1980 special version he also provided various effects for piranha et and splash specifically the mermaid design and construction he created the weapons for director Malone's follow-up creature. He created the killbots for Chopping Mall. And he was the supervising puppeteer for Herbie Fully Loaded. <laughs> He's a creature designer on Beetlejuice, Hammerhead Shark designer for Joe vs. the Volcano, puppeteer for Ace Ventura, and designed the Black Rhino from MacGyver episode Black Rhino. Huh an animatronic so terrifyingly real that the episode literally stops down and fills the screen with a warning that the animal is not real and that none were harmed in the making of the episode. He designed miniatures for Star Trek The Motion Picture, 
1941, and Day of Resurrection, which I'll get to for a belated minisode this year. But more recently, he was the VFX producer on FX's Legion series. That's the, oh, yeah. that one that you liked. I only watched the first season, but it was good. Yeah. The music here was from Thomas Chase. This was his first music credit, but he's no slouch either. He composed all the incidental music for DuckTales. He composed original songs for the late 80s Alvin and the Chipmunks series. He conducted the scores for the Adventures of the Gummy Bears series. He co-composed theme songs for The Powerpuff Girls, Dexter's Lab, Real Ghostbusters, Pirates of Darkwater, Captain Planet and the Planeteers, and he also composed Sinjinor, the sequel to this film. <laughs> the other musician, Del Hake, this was his first credit also, and he was the orchestrator for the scores of Time Cop, Quiz Show, The Net, Scary Movie 3, and then 208 episodes of The Simpsons. Hmm. Editor Warren Chadwick, he was a producer and post-prod soup on Shocker, and Ooh. he also edited a 1989 film called Monster High, but not the Monster High that I worked on. Shocker's a, Shocker's a good one. That's the, it's Wes Craven, right? Wes Craven. With Mitch Pileggi. Yeah, Mitch Pileggi playing this really sinister character. Yeah. John Stinson played Ted Lonergan. Uh, he's an unnamed character in Foolin' Around last year, possibly cut from the film because there were big portions that were cut out of that movie before the cut that we saw. Uh, he's back later this year as a therapist in The Hand, and he's also an astronaut in Malone's second film, Creature. Diana Davidson played Jennifer Stanton. She played Rooftop Swimmer in Dirty Harry, uncredited. <laughs> That's her only other credit. Uh, David Moses was Detective Luke Capel. He's a mission coordinator in Malone's second film, Creature. Walker Edmiston played Police Chief Dennis Warren. He has lots of fun one-off credits. He was several characters in the original Star Trek series. He's the voice of Dr. Blinky on H.R. Puff and Stuff. He's an uncredited voice in the Andromeda Strain. He's the voice of the baby chimp at the end of Escape from Planet of the Apes. You know, the one that's in the cage that starts talking? Yeah. yeah. He's the voice of Slugworth in Willy Wonka. He's the voice of God in Holy Moses last year. He's the voice of Inferno on the Transformers animated series. And he's the voice of Harvey Gabor in Gem. He's the voice of Sir Thornberry in Adventures of Gummy Bears. He's the voice of Slugworth. Was Slugworth not his own voice? I I guess not. Um, I think that because they employed so many local Germans, oh. that there was probably a lot of ADR that needed to be done. I think I had read somewhere that uh, Gloop's parents didn't speak a word of, right. of English. Pamela Bowman played Janie Richter. That's the, the first girl that gets killed. Um, the one that's naked in the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. She plays Fleshette. In a 1980 film that we somehow missed called Ultra Flesh. So I'll find that one. Um, I feel like it might not have had a wide release. <laughs> oh, it had a wide opening. <laughs> I'll tell you that one. That's all I got. <laughs> Those are all the credits for this one. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> Glad that's over. <laughs> I, I'm really happy for uh, Bill Malone that he got this movie made for so cheap and then it paid for itself and you know he got to make a movie but it's a thumbs down there's no reason to watch this no there's nothing special about it the monster design's not spectacular no not especially not enough to warrant resurrecting the franchise for another film later um 10 years later it's a thumbs down for me oh yeah thumbs down no don't bother do we know where this is going letterbox oh shoot i didn't pull my letterbox up um i feel like this film is 
the most by the book monster movie like it's just very very paint by numbers monster movie we have a thing we have a laboratory we have the you know rogue scientist and then the monster killed people and you got to get yeah to it. and you have the the former cop investigating on his own time it's just exactly what you would have guessed mm-hmm. if i told you the premise of the movie um, I'm putting this at number 19 out of 21, Whoa. so it's still above Home Sweet Home and Scream, but I put it below Pinball Summer. I have it in 19th also, which is, again, above Home Sweet Home and Scream, uh, but it's below Harry's War for me because I had those slightly out of order from you guys. I think I'm going to put this in number 19. Oh, interesting. <laughs> below Pinball Summer yeah. above Home Sweet Home. That sounds <laughs> completely fair to me. Um, yeah, there's there's nothing... There's nothing out of the ordinary or special about this. Um, None of the acting is great. I did like the dialogue for the very first scene where they have the car accident with each other. And if it had stayed like that funny and he was that sarcastic character the whole time, it would have been fun. But the second half of the movie, he's very serious and angry the whole time. Um, I don't understand the title of the film. Like Scared to death? Yeah, like nobody is scared to death. People in general aren't scared that they're going to get murdered. No, because the, the case is closed. Everything's fine. Um, it's just like Scream. It's just a situation where, you know, what's something that sounds like a horror movie? Although I would say that Scared to Death makes it sound too much like a slasher and yeah. not enough like a sci-fi No, exactly. Monster. For sure. Um, not that you could call it Sinjinor. I think Sinjinor is a much worse name. <laughs> um, and that it's crazy that they called the sequel that. Um, but when I was reading the synopsis at the end of the previous episode, I was like, it's attacked by a synthetic organism. What is going yeah. on? That's not what I, how I thought this sentence was going to end. Um, because it seems like you're right. The scared to death just sounds like a generic horror film. Um, and it should have been, I don't even know what you would call this thing, but yeah, it, it scared to death doesn't correlate to anything that happens in the movie. It, it fits right up there with home sweet home and scream although it is more competent as far as like you said a paint by the numbers yeah plot line yeah but 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 even the uh, slightly more competent in that way but i would say almost less competent in some other ways like it's just as bad in terms of the filmmaking quality i disagree i actually think that the camera work and the lighting is better in this movie the audio is the audio is awful it it, because it felt like every time there was a wide shot you couldn't hear the characters and i'm like are you just not getting mics close enough to these people because i can't they were still close enough that you could see them on occasion (laughs) it's true (laughs) um uh, and there was a couple of really bad edits, but that that might not be the fault of the editor. That's true. Um, it might be the fault of the their... director and the coverage. Well, no, the, I... that there are these other versions floating around. I feel like the true. film transfer was bad. Like it looked like there was literally chunks missing sometimes because mm, yeah. the film looked like it skipped. Yeah, there there is a moment where Sherry's talking and her sentence jumps twice in the middle yeah. of a in the middle of her words. Yeah. So, don't bother. Yeah, don't bother with this one. Um, I think that's everything for Scared to Death. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. You can find a button at the top of our .com and join the 24-7 movie chat 
and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future. Also search for Vintage Video Podcast on YouTube and subscribe to our new channel there. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing All Night Long, which IMDb describes like so. A middle-aged executive's lifestyle and values are turned upside down after he is demoted to a chain store night manager. We leave you now with the trailer for All Night Long. Barbara Streisand. Gene Hackman. I don't understand my son. I don't understand my wife. I don't understand myself. Together, they do it all. All night long. Are you expecting me one? At four in the morning? Rated R starts tomorrow with Man's Brewing Westwood, Chinese Hollywood, and other selected theaters.